This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Thorn Podcast. Joining me this week for another episode is Dr. Chris Mason, who's a professor, he's a scientist, he's an entrepreneur, and he's the author of the book, The Next 500 Years, Engineering Life to Reach New Worlds. And on occasion, he's also an investigator for NASA with various missions, and, and we can talk about that. So for this episode, we're going to explore Dr. Mason's research into outer space and and, and what awaits the human race. So to kick things off, uh, tell us how your work with genetics led to collaborating with NASA and, and where you've been going with that. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, and thanks so much, Dr. Ron Shreed. It was a pleasure to be here. And we have had the great pleasure of actually, you know, in the early days of the lab, I started at Cornell, was, you know, I got situated, I'm in an office, I'm by myself, I'm looking around, there's nobody there, because I haven't hired anyone, I just have an empty room and an empty lab. And I actually really, it's one of these great defining moments of like, you have a wonderful opportunity, you know, right on, on your lap, and think, well, what do I build? What do I create? What do I, what do I study? And even, of course, I had some proposals, that's how I got the job. But I really thought more and more about studying this cancer. You can study different infectious disease. You can study inherited diseases that, that get passed on through families. But the thing that I kept thinking more and more about is that the technology is changing so fast that genetics and genomics and sequencing is getting cheaper and cheaper. And then I really kept thinking about, you know, I want to understand really this, uh, what are the humans that endure, endure the most stress, the most unusual environments? And could we learn from them, kind of these built-in outliers? And I also went to space camp when I was a kid. So I've always been in- Oh, you did. I did. I went twice, actually. So I, I've always thought a lot about astronauts or going to space and love astronomy. So I, you know, th I had those two passions, genetics and uh, space in me ever since I was a kid. And I thought, well, you know, let's really combine these. I thought, you know, a great outlier human or astronauts, when they go for these long missions, like huge amounts of radiation, they get uh, a lot of stress, the fluidic shifts, the cognitive challenges, uh, osteo basically as a model for osteoporosis and muscle atrophy. So it's really hard on the body. And I actually wrote a proposal to NASA that said we should study the astronauts, you know, before, during, and after flight to look at their their DNA, their microbiome, look at all the changes in the proteins, everything that's happening in their body to understand where we could intervene and what we could actually monitor and then maybe even improve upon it. And uh, when they wrote back, they said, well, we can't fund your study uh, because we don't even have the samples you're describing, which would be viably banked cells that we could look at. And they said, but hang hang in there because we may have some solicitations or some opportunities soon where some of your ideas could be tried for some other missions. And then there was an announcement to do a year-long mission in space with Scott Kelly, and he had an identical twin who would stay on Earth that we could study both in. So our How convenient. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was great. So we were, we were one of the few labs that were selected to lead this mission and did this with NASA. It was our first mission with NASA back in 2014 that we started. Did you get to know the Kellys pretty well? Very well. Like They're hilarious and, and great subjects. And Scott Kelly wrote a book about his year in space. So I wished every subject for every clinical trial I did that they wrote a book about it because we actually could look at when he had the most experience of pain or discomfort and match that to his molecular data. So we got this great, you know, real 
in-depth first-person view of his time as an astronaut in space. And his brother also is now Senator Kelly in Arizona. So, he, you know, they became famous. They're both famous originally, and now they're extra famous. Uh, and we also now have to get blood from Senator Kelly through the Secret Service, which is a little bit of paperwork, but we still get blood every year uh, from them as well. And they're, they're great sports and really contributing a lot through to the research that's ongoing to this day. Now, I, I remember you talking in a lecture about Scott and one of the comments you made that surprised me a little bit is that he didn't necessarily feel great after all that time in space. Yeah, yeah. He he broke out in rat basically when he got back, he had his his ankles swelled up to the size of he said basketballs. So this huge inflammation, this big response, his cytokine levels spiked up really high, which are these signaling molecules in the blood that indicate a lot of stress. We saw spikes of mitochondrial. DNA, basically pieces of his cells almost coming out in his bloodstream. He, you know, even the weight of clothing on his arm, if you look at your sort of sleeve or your or pant legs, that weight alone, would he break out into a rash because it was just too much weight for the skin to bear. You know, he almost had to walk around nude for several days. Uh, you know, some people do this recreationally. He was doing it for just, you know, medical purposes, did not be in, in pain. And, and both these situations are, are fine for the record. Uh, it's, it's to your own liking. But uh, I'd say, you know, eventually it went away, but there were several days where the inflammation levels were exceedingly high and, and also the swelling. And so what's interesting is his body, it wasn't so much that, you know, being in space for a year that was so hard because his body had really adapted, at, but it was really returning to gravity that really, uh, you know, disrupted his body and, and was hard on, on his system, his bones, his muscles. Um, so that, that was definitely rough uh, on his body. So it wasn't so much that space was harmful, but returning was was stressful. Yes, exactly. If, okay. Only space is hard. Coming back to gravity is harder. Because you know, when the the science fiction movies we all see, the Star Trek, the Expanse, uh, one of my favorite shows. You know, they make it look like space is a piece of cake. Like the only real issue is whether you have gravity turned on or not. But it it seems like there's a lot of things that could happen in space that would affect us in a lot of different ways, especially our genome. Yeah, many things change in space. So it's actually, it's one of the really surprising things about the study is we saw his telomeres got longer in space. So telomeres, you know, if, you're, if your DNA in your cell is kind of like a book where you have the letters printed on the pages and that's your code of life, actually the telomeres are the, the bookend, basically the beginning and the end uh, of the covers of the book. It kind of keeps it intact. And as we age, we normally age, they get shrink, they get frayed over time, much like a book does, it gets frayed as you age. But in space, they actually got longer. It's as if the, it's as if you took an old book and the cover got shinier just sitting on a shelf, right? It was really surprising to see this. And we, you know, so that, that was one of the big surprises, but we did see evidence of him being mutated, seeing mutations show up in his blood and his body responding to the mutation. So it was both good and bad in the sense that a little bit look younger by telomeres, but we could see more radiation being absorbed by his body, which uh, was the, you know contributing to more potential mutation. So it was both both good and bad, I guess I'd say. Is there anything we can do to to help with that radiation issue? Um, you know, it doesn't sound like it's necessarily all bad, but you know that that certainly comes up when we talk about people going to Mars, which would take what a year to get to Mars. Yeah. So it. Um, uh... Yeah, be, so it depends on the orbital mechanics, um, but it'll be uh, basically it's six to seven months to get there. And then you'd have to basically turn around immediately and come back because at that point, the planets are farther apart. Or you wait on the surface for a little while, maybe about, you know, uh, another year or so. 
and then start to come back towards Earth. So it could be, you know, as, as long as three years of emission and as short as about, you know, you know, 14 months or so. But it's a long time, right? And so yeah, you'd have long time. Wouldn't have gravity for most of that time if you do the short mission. And and we know it's stressful on the body. We know that, you know, you you know, absent some artificial gravity system like a rotating platform, we're gonna have to figure out ways to deal with it. And but but we're not beholden to just hoping and crossing our fingers and toes. There's really amazingly new genetic technologies that let us turn on or turn off genes with these CRISPR methods uh, that, you know, the way you can have uh, clinical trials where you add in a gene to fix a disease, you can use some of the same technologies to turn on a gene, like for example, a gene for DNA repair or response to inflammation or swelling. You can start to tweak and control the genes in your own body uh, as needed. So I think the term is genetic malleability that's, that you've, you've talked about. That's possible. That's we're, we're not, it's not just possible. We're already starting to do that. Exactly. And I talk about this a bit in my book, uh, The Next 500 Years, which is that a lot of it seems like science fiction, but it's already rolled out in clinical trials. We already have patients with beta thalassemia or sickle cell disease, these diseases of hemoglobin in their blood, which carry oxygen, where what's interesting is they, you know, they have a defective gene in their adult hemoglobin, which again, carries oxygen through the blood. But when we're all fetuses, we have something called fetal hemoglobin, and uh, this actually turns off shortly after you're born, but it's it, it's like a fully different functional version of hemoglobin. So what has been done in these trials is they've turned back on the gene that we used to use when we were a fetus. It's kind of like going back to the genes you used when you were young and then using them to cure a disease. But again, it's this idea of, of epigenetic control. So it's on top of the genome. So it's not genetic. You're not changing your, your genome. You're just changing what your genome is using in different cells and what genes are active. And so this plasticity literally is curing people on Earth today and could enable people to survive uh, in harsh environments like Mars in the future. So that brings up uh, a really interesting point about genes being turned on and off. I think before we got down to the final work of figuring out exactly how many human genes there are. And I don't think we know exactly, but I remember the early talk was that we thought we had 100,000 genes, right? Or even more, and it turned out to be a fifth that amount, correct? Yeah, so yeah, 100,000 was the initial, some of thought 120,000. And then we started to look at fruit flies and little worms, and they also looked like they had about 20,000 genes that made proteins. Now, those are just genes that make the, say, enzymes in your blood, or make like hemoglobin, these other proteins in your body, or hair, for example. But there are other genes that are called non-coding RNAs that don't make protein, but they're still active. And so we're still discovering new genes in the human genome. Actually, the latest number is now back up to 60,000. Uh, so really? Yeah, it is. So the official gene count, if you go to gencodegenes.org, um, you, you know, it's a, an official group from the NIH, the National Institute of Health and Scientists, who every year they say, how many genes are we really sure we validated? characterized and and really you know confirmed in multiple cells and individuals it's actually still going up we're still discovering actually the fundamental facets of human biology and how cells um, become themselves and regulate each other so uh, so it's an ongoing process but the number of protein coding genes is still flat it's about 20,000 uh, that has stayed the same and, and it's because there's there's not that many new versions of those genes that are out there actually so if um just as an aside, if uh, if I wanted to go get my whole genome tested, you know, so I was looking for some kind of abnormality, how many genes is a typical lab going to analyze in me? 
Yeah, normally a lab will say they do a targeted panel and they'll look at something, maybe a few dozen or a few hundred genes. But what we can do now is with these methods, we actually take a sample, break apart all the cells, grab every molecule of DNA and RNA, and we can sequence all of them, right? So we can look at tens of thousands of genes and even hundreds of thousands of the variations of those genes when they, you know, slightly tweak themselves or do what's called splicing. So we now with more modern genetic methods have a, a vastly expanded repertoire of tools to not look at one or two genes at a time or even 10 or 20. We can look at all of them and also look at any genetic differences in them, uh, you know, do this even once a day. So it really opens up uh, a lot of great new areas of research. And I remember in, again, in one of your presentations talking about how the cost to do that used to be astronomical and that now it's getting to where it's pretty cheap. And then maybe we can do that on an iPhone. That's right. That's right. So it used to <laughs> It's amazing. So there is a, a chart that shows actually the cost of sequencing a genome from 2001, when the first human genome uh, was completed, up till current day. And it's plotted over the years because it used to be about about a billion dollars to just sequence one human genome to get basically these three billion letters of genetic code from a person and characterize them. And what's extraordinary is that today you can do it for about $500. And so that drop is orders and orders of magnitude is even faster than say Moore's law, which is how computing speeds have gotten so fast over the past uh, several decades. It is the fastest pace of technological change in human history. It's also why I tell everyone in our lab uh, that every day is the best day ever to be a geneticist. Cause like that speed of progress means we can sequence better, faster, cheaper, get more data every day. It, it is, it is, really unparalleled in terms of technological change uh, in any discipline. So it's a euphoric time to be a geneticist for sure. So I know I've seen numerous studies that would bring up an intervention, like put somebody on a certain diet and be able to see which genes are turned on and turned off, you know, do an array. Is that something, is that going to be feasible for an astronaut to do a finger prick and, and actually see whether these technologies that are affecting uh, genetic expression are, are working or not in space in real time. Is that great. possible? Yeah. Yeah, great question. That is literally the call I just came from earlier today is planning out this mission. We were trying to do it this year on the Polaris Dawn mission or on uh, an ax uh, a mission with SpaceX next year called uh, uh, Axiom 2 or the Polaris Dawn's also through the SpaceX Dragon. And so I'm flying out to Hawthorne uh, next week to do consenting for the crew to talk about these protocols, these methods. We are now at that stage where you can actually draw your own blood, extract it, get the RNA, sequence it yourself, and look at the data and see <laughs> if I'm modifying myself, how's it going? Or if I'm getting... <laughs> how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> we can see. Or you can see yourself at some point. So it, it is an unusual democratization of the technology where anybody anywhere could grab a blood sample and take a look, right? So it, it of course, has great promise, but there is also risk of people misinterpreting or over overinterpreting or really misunderstanding the data. So we have to tread carefully, but it is uh, an extraordinary period of, of access to technology uh, on Earth and in space. Well, I know that there, there's this whole field of biological age clocks, you know, that Steve Horvath kind of uh, initiated, originated, that, you know, looks at the methylation patterns, which basically tells you what genes are be turned on and off, and use that to say, well, here's the actual age of your body. And then at first, people said, well, what do you do with that information? Like, you can't intervene and change that. But that seems to have been disproved, right? That you can 
there are actually studies showing you could change your biological age with a, a dietary intervention or a lifestyle intervention. Yeah, it, well, it used to, because it was always thought that, you know, maybe you could nudge it a little bit or or hope for the best, but we, we have multiple measures of this biological age now. And of course, one of them is, of course, sold by Thorne. It's something that we developed uh, in-house with Joel Dudley and Nathan Price and, and Bodhi Zhang and a lot of the team. And, you know, and talking with Paul, our, our, our fearless CEO, you know, this is something we've really been focused a lot on in the past you know, few years because it gives us a new way to quantify the efficacy of a therapy, a probiotic, a prebiotic, a supplement, an exercise regimen. Uh, if you're doing bodybuilding, if you're really, if you're doing anything in your lifestyle, you know, sometimes you can just do it by how do you feel, but you want to have something that's really quantified and say, looking at your DNA, you're looking at your immune system, looking at metabolites, looking really at these really clear molecular changes that happen, for example, like telomeres in space, uh, there's, there's these things that change and fluctuate. Some of them are much more malleable than others and some more than we thought, uh, but other ones really can tell you, are you on your way towards being a little bit younger than you'd expect, or are you is it getting worse? You know, So some things like being chronically inflamed make your, your biological age go higher. Having diabetes, having you know, having a stroke, not surprisingly. So some of these real harsh diseases or insults to the body do affect it. But in the hopeful side, you know, really good exercise regimens, again, good probiotics, uh, eating well in general, having a good diet, um, and and even just getting sleep. These are all things that can help you uh, do well and, and uh, decrease your biological age. Is it possible that we could design a diet specifically for astronauts that would? you know, alter the genes that are being turned on and off? And, and if so, you think somebody like SpaceX would be interested in doing that. And I, I bring that up because I still remember the days of Tang, right? That Yeah, they, yeah. Right. Yeah, what do astronauts drink? Tang, right? Yeah, they, they, they love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it is tasty, but I think... So there, we, you know, it's at the very beginning stages of this where you don't just want to have the you know, probiotics for the astronauts so that they have good gut health, but you can also use them as miniature factories, right? The microbes in our gut make and process and you know produce variants of medicines we use, of, of uh, molecules our body uses all the time. So you wouldn't even just have it for general health. You could use it as a little pharmacy. And there's some great work in the field by like Adam Arkin and others. And we have some, some synthetic yeast cells we've made in the lab that carry different proteins from other organisms. Or we've even made human cells that have um, tardigrade genes tardigrades are these little water barriers that can survive in the vacuum of space so you can make chimeric cells that are part human part tardigrade and get some of the best of, of both worlds basically so you know i think we have a real um interesting opportunity to to leverage any genetic tool from any organism that we've characterized and bring it to bear and it, whether it's a microbe or a human cell or a virus uh really any of them so i i have to bring this up because i i suspect there's some people listening to us that hear the term engineering life and immediately get nervous. You know, we shouldn't be messing with this. And, you know, how do we know we aren't going to create Frankensteins and go off in all kinds of unexpected directions? What, what, what would be your answer to people who are worried about this idea that we can somehow alter our genetic expression? Yeah, so the, I, we do, they should be concerned as, as you should when we roll out any new clinical protocol, any new technology, any new medicine, even a new probiotic or supplement, something that seems innocuous, you, you have to be careful and do it slowly and start with a few people, start with then a larger group to look at efficacy. You want to roll them out bit by bit. And so I think, you know, even though it sounds as if 
you're doing something that might be that could lead to a great cure for a disease, as, I, as I've described, with like beta thalassemia, uh, where you can you know turn back on the gene and cure the disease. But it could lead to harm. It could turn something off that you didn't want off, and actually lead to maybe a cancer. Right. So none, nothing we're proposing here we would suddenly roll out on thousands of people. It will do it very slowly with, you know, probably less than a dozen people first who fully consented, who understand the risk and where the benefits outweigh the risks. Uh, and then we do it in larger cohorts bit by bit. So it, it is just as cautious and careful as we would do with any other drug or therapy that we do for, for um, yeah, for any other person or any therapy. Well, it, it seems to me that the, the case you're making is that if we're going to be able to explore space for any length of time, we, we need to do something that we can't just go up in our current state in a ship and, and fly to another galaxy without knowing something about which genes are being turned on and off and something about how to affect that genetic expression, you know, and expect to be healthy. Right. right it seems right. like this is essential. It, it, it just is, is if, you know, if you're uh, simple things like, you know, when you're dehydrated, it's just when you go to the bathroom. If you have very clear urine or it's very yellow, you're like, oh, it's yellow. You think, oh, I should drink some more water. So simple readouts on the body just to give feedback of how you're doing. We can now do them at a very granular level down at the genetic level. And we would be foolish not to use them because they can help inform how we're doing, how we're responding, and if we're being you know, healthy or in, in any way dangerous. How close are we to the magic toilet that you you sit on and a little readout tells you what you need to eat that day or what you should avoid that day? Great question. I, I've been fantasizing <laughs> about this uh, for, for like a decade now, and I it, we there are some automated toilets that have been built by Jack Gilbert uh, to basically make sampling of your uh, microbes and stools so you can characterize them later. But the actual toilet that's magical that tells you what you need to do, or at least gives you a report on what you did, uh, might still be five or 10 years away. And it'll probably be really expensive when it comes out. But I, I can imagine cases in hospitals where people with really, really aggressive diarrhea or GI problems that, you know, they would probably sign up for it. If it, if it can help them diagnose or cure their ailment, uh, they'll do it, right? So even if it it comes in a few years and it's expensive. I still think there's a really uh, great use for it. Well, I remember the toilets, uh, you know, in the, in the spaceships used to be millions of dollars just for a basic flush model. Um, so, uh, you know, a million dollar toilet for a, a Mars mission might not be a bad idea. <laughs> if it keeps you alive on the red planet, then it's worth it. Then it's worth it. All right. So let's take a short break and then we'll be right back to answer some questions from our listeners. Are you ready to take the guesswork out of good health? If you are, then Thorne makes it easy with simple health tests that offer deep insights into what's going on inside your body. Choose from multiple tests that analyze for sleep, stress, weight management, biological age, the gut microbiome, and more. Thorne's at-home health tests measure your personal biomarkers, providing detailed insights that help you identify potential health risks and specific areas of improvement. Plus, each one provides individualized recommendations for diet, exercise, and supplementation. Visit thorn.com to learn more about Thorne's Health Test and to start your new health discoveries today. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com.
And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions that have come in from our community. The first question this week comes from a listener who asks, how sterile are the inside of spaceships? Um, and then kind of a corollary, is there such a thing as being too clean for astronauts? So I wonder if is there a hygiene hypothesis for astronauts or, you know, do you worry about it being too sterile? No, good, good. These are great questions. Uh, so, you know, the environment is it's not sterile really at all, because if you look at like, for example, between your toes, it'd be the same as asking, is it sterile between my toes? It's definitely not right. Basically, that, that there's no shower on the current space station. The old Skylab did have a shower, but the only way the astronauts clean up is with basically with like a wet wipe uh, like you'd use for a baby's butt. And uh, that's it. Right. So that's your shower. And so they carry up there with them their own microbiome and then they exchange their microbiome with their crewmates. They become more genetically similar to each other at the microbiome level as within a matter of actually even a few days. So they're kind of in a microbial soup. So it's definitely not sterile, but it actually you know, wouldn't need to be because you do want to have a diverse microbial environment around you, both on Earth and in space. So uh, it's, a, it's an engineered ecosystem like all built environments are. It, is, it has its own microbes, its own species, its own dynamics. Uh, but these are mostly good things because you want that diversity. Your immune system requires it. It's generally healthier for you. So it's um, it's writ large a good thing. Is there anything actively that's done to alter the microbiome on the space station? I mean, you know, do they do they spray it with, with sterilizers at some point to start out clean? Do they do anything at all or do they just track it? Uh, before it goes up, it's very clean because they're worried about any potential pathogens. And and they also isolate the crew, all the crews quarantine usually uh, for several days up to several weeks before they fly up to make sure they don't bring a cold up there or any other infection. So you know they they do what they can for some basic preventative measures, but it, it is not um, you know it, it's not completely sterile and it's not perfectly engineered yet. But but it is you know it's a it's a continual exchange because not only the crew when you bring up supplies you know they basically try to make it so it's pretty sterile and they sometimes irradiate food for example uh but but it's still some things can still survive and spores can still persist so it's never never 100 is space itself sterile are there microbes floating around on you know asteroid dust or anything like that is what what do we know about space in general well so space is almost completely sterile but we know at least since we've been out in orbit it is no longer completely sterile because there are things that happen when you're in space like you eject matter out into the vacuum of space but some of it doesn't make it back to earth goes just out towards the stars also spacesuits you think of spacesuits being pretty tightly sealed right there it's like a you have to contain all the air you need it to survive, right? It's a spacesuit. But it turns out they actually continually can push their positive pressure or suits. And the reason they're built that way is that if you have a micrometeorite puncture your suit, you want it so that you don't just immediately deflate, right? So there's so much pressure in the suit that it's actually almost always leaking a little bit of of the air in the suit into space. And so when people do these spacewalks, like Peggy Whitson did 10 spacewalks, every time she went out there in space, there's kind of a small mini jets of, of skin microbiome shooting out into space. So it's probably not sterile anymore because we've been populating it for several decades with human skin microbiome. So what do you think, what's the best show you've seen? What do you think is the, the best depiction that's accurate of, of what goes on in space? And, and this person specifically says, what's the best depiction of space nutrition you know you don't really see people eating in science fiction shows of space but you know is there one that you think uh is is even close to what it's actually like 
Yeah, but actually, my favorite was probably The Expanse. It's a series by mm-hmm. James Corey. Um, Love that show. Great. It's actually yeah, the, the collaborative. It's actually the pen name because there's two authors uh, who write it. But the the show is really, I think, a great reflection of you know the possibility of humanity being seamlessly and readily moving back and forth between the inner planets and the outer planets and really become a spacefaring species. But also, I think what's really intriguing is that it still has all the same political trappings and interpersonal mm. drama and strife. Mm-hmm. And, and chaos that we, is kind of of our today's world. So we're even, still humans, yeah, we're still <laughs> humans, which I find kind of sad. I thought, well, maybe at that point, like, like Star Trek universe is, is fairly uh, optimistic that once we're at that point in humanity, there's no more war and there's all the resources you need and it's all kumbaya. Uh, but the expanse is like, no, no, we're still human. They're still just as uh, as you know, petty and bitter and and mean and and backstabby and sometimes liars are out there and you got to watch out for all of them, right? So it's interesting uh, to see that there wasn't really a a fundamental cultural shift as there was technological. One of the things I remember from from I think the first or second episode is um, is one of the captains of the ship basically goes nuts and he says, uh, you know, we've we've conquered space. But why couldn't we have brought more light? Is it if, if we were out there living on asteroids and we had all artificial light, do you think that's uh, something humans can cope with? Mm, I mean, I think a lot of people have this experience today where you just have LED lights and no one really likes them. You can actually have different versions of lighting. So we wouldn't be beholden to technologies that are just like LEDs. There are things called quantum dots, which you can attach the lighting systems that give you a much broader frequency range of light can make it look much more just like, not just look like, but actually be like sunlight. So your skin is feeling the broad spectrum of light that you normally get when you look at the sun at the beach. So, you know, there's ways we could fix that. And I think the show, you know, when they first started writing it more than 10 years ago, a lot of the technologies weren't out yet. So I think they just uh, didn't know it at the time, but it would be, uh, it's definitely very possible and and would be doable, I think, to, to these new technologies and not be so tortured uh, by the light. <laughs> yes. So here's a, a question that's kind of a, that feeds off that, which is, I understand people age at different rates in space. And you talked about uh, Scott Kelly's telomeres getting actually longer, which might have indicated that he got younger, I don't know. A, is that is that true that people age at a different rate because they're, they're in space? And then B, are there things that they could take, like nicotinamide riboside is something that was asked about, you know, are there, are there supplements people could take that will change how they age? Yeah, and some of the ones, uh, they're also sold by Thorne, of course, it's a Thorne podcast. Uh, nicotinamide riboside is really uh, used broadly in a lot of clinical trials. It's not yet being tried by astronauts, but we're talking about this for a mission soon is to start to try some of these, you know, interesting options for really decreasing the accelerated aging that does happen in space. I mean, basically, you get osteoporosis, you get muscle atrophy, your vision starts to go, you get brain fog, uh, you get these cognitive declines, you get a lot of hallmarks of aging really quickly in space. And so there's a lot of, I think, really intriguing discussion. Can we do sort of N of one clinical trials, meaning just one person, but have many, many time points collected so we can see if there's any dynamics happening inside the body, we can track them exactly when they occur and at, at, to what degree and, and what tissues and, you know, use, use these kind of uh, unique astronauts as, as, as really testing beds for some of these anti-aging therapies or, you know, at least uh, wellness therapies. It seems like in order to answer that question, we're also going to have to have good biomarkers, you know, that can indicate whether these things are working. I mean, we can't we can't put people on a Mars mission, you know, where they're going to be up for a year and a half and say, well, we hope this will help. 
will obviously want to study this on Earth and will want to be able to look at certain things in their blood or maybe their gut microbiome and, and be able to show that this does seem to be reversing some of these conditions you're talking about, like sarcopenia or osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a great point. So the markers are not just going to be how do you feel, right? You want to say, what what is some of the mitochondrial function in your blood? What do we see for cytokine markers? These, these molecules that signal between tissues in the body and show immune system activi activity. Uh, even looking at stem cell function, like take the cells that are circulating that are early stage in stem cells. And making sure they have the full range of plasticity that they should. So the, the, everything from there to something called clonal hematopoiesis. We can see what's the presence of mutated clones in your blood. And we can also see that from a blood draw. So there's actually this you know broad tool set we can use from just a single blood draw these days. And uh, one of the things we're also trying on the next mission is also the drawbridge device, which uh, Thorne acquired a uh, drawbridge company last year. And we're getting it flight approved uh, as we speak, actually, so we could fly that up in space. So you wouldn't even have to have a fresh phlebotomy done and brought back and frozen. You can put it on basically the dried Wattman paper. So you can do a blood draw. It's easy as pushing a button and then it's banked on that card and brought back for looking at metabolites or small peptides or looking at DNA and RNA. So we're looking broadly at all these biomarkers because we don't know yet which will be the most informative uh, for seeing how well we're doing. But, you know, when you don't know where to look, the best where to look is everywhere you can. So you can make everywhere. Yeah. And and as we talked about earlier, we're, we're at the point now where we can use something like an iPhone to even tell which genes are being turned on and off. I, I've seen, you know, these, I don't know what you call those kind of diagrams that are tiny little squares that just show the whole array of genes that are lit up or not lit up or different colors. And it seems like that's got a lot of potential. Yep. Yeah. There's, um, there are, you know, ways where you can detect all genes being activated. So we, we do this now a sequencing method where you take all the RNA molecules and you sequence as many of them as you can, right? So we don't get a hundred or even a few thousand genes. We get tens of thousands of genes plus you can always get these also called circulating RNAs or even circulating nucleic acids that are these little tiny packages in your blood called exosomes, which carry DNA, RNA, protein. And even there, we're pulling them out and looking at proteins and RNA inside of them. So we, we can look for these, these signals in almost any area of the body and any kind of you know area that we can grab a sample, basically. Uh, you don't have to say some people think Thorne is a supplement company. <laughs> they didn't realize that there's oh, a whole lot going on behind yeah, the scenes yeah, here. Yeah. A lot like the a lot of the work on you know using these methods for informing the clinical trials that we that we run or how we help patients. You know, the you know, I've had these a lot of these conversations with Paul as the CEO is that you know we really the best way to, to test these up is to get it out into patients, monitor them, see how they're doing, get feedback, run some of these trials. Uh, and that's what we do. So what's your best guess? When are we going to Mars? And and when we do, how are they going to be able to pack in all the nutrition they need for being out in space for a year and a half? And I know shows like The Expanse, they've got this kitchen and you see this lit tube with plants growing in it. You know, they've got uh, Ganymede, right, that's got all the, you know, the, the plant biology research going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is cool. When, when do you think we're going to do this? And, and if we can do it, what's the food going to be like? I hope it's going to be more than Tang. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> I think we're all hoping for that. So it, it will be, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of people working on the engineering of plants to get them to work under, you know, different gravity environments. Or even uh, there's a guy, Rob Furl, who just grew uh, plants in lunar soil that he tested from NASA. So trying to get plants to grow in soil that they've never really had to use before. But all that works on going on the, on the plant side. But there's also people, 
making microbes that can make your drugs, make your foods. It kind of end up being a bit like a goop, but uh, it will at least be very nutritious. So you probably want to blend that in with some other solid foods. But you know, lettuce has been made in space. There's been peppers. Uh, you can have an espresso in space. So there's been some of the creature comforts that we like that have been have certainly been done in space, but it, it'll probably start pretty bland, I think, for a while and eventually get uh, better later. I see a, a question that actually is related to that, which is what have we learned from the space program about, you know, the value of supplements or health that would impact what astronauts do? And, and do astronauts take vitamin mineral supplements now? Uh, some of them do and some don't. It's very individualized. But the thing that's most common is actually sleeping pills so they can just get a good night's sleep. And then also a lot of uh, medication for the nausea and the puffiness and inflammation. But the supplements are widely varied. Some some take a lot of probiotics. Some take nothing at all. Some take uh, NAD precursors. It, it, it really varies as much as the person from what we've seen so far. Is it up to the to the uh, individual astronaut what they want to take? Do they get a choice on that? A little bit. So if it's something that's a supplement, it's just a dietary supplement that's generally under their purview. They also get a personal package that they can bring up with them, a little container that they can bring whatever they want. You know, so they can bring things up as they like. And it goes through the flight surgeon and the medical medical ops crew to make sure you know that's nothing that would cause a harm or disruption. But as long as it's something you know uh, over the counter, commonly available, it's just like aspirin, uh, so that they, they can pick if they want. And I imagine they're eating a lot of dehydrated food. Is that, uh, yep. are they still getting complete nutrients? From, this is a question that came in. If you dehydrate it, does it lose its nutritional value? It mostly does not. And it depends a bit on the, the plant and also the material, but it is like rehydrated up in flight and the flavor is not great, but they also can't smell as well in space. So they can't quite tell. But the there's also tasting rooms that NASA has. If you live near uh, Johnson Space Center, you can go and help like taste the food before they give it to the astronauts to make sure it doesn't taste awful. So they do check the taste and the texture and the quality. And it is the nutritional content is very well regulated and tested. So it, it's, it's good nutrition, actually. The thing that's interesting, though, is fresh food is still the best. When uh, Kate Rubin, the astronaut last year, grew a lettuce in space, every one, every one of the crew members, six people on the ISS, each one got about one leaf, maybe two. Uh, <laughs> but, but they said it was the best lettuce they had ever had. <laughs> so they, fresh food, if you can get it, uh, even if it's only one leaf, they'll, it's, it's like heavenly. Yeah. I, I, that makes me think of backpacking trips, Yeah, right? Where you've got all this dehydrated food and then you've got the one... Like maybe you brought a steak for mm -hmm. one night and mm -hmm. it's the best steak you've uh, ever yeah, eaten. For sure. So one last question, which I think is very interesting, is do you think that we'll find a mineral in space that we could someday use for human health? And I know I've read that certain people are, are investing in land on the moon, like thinking that someday we're going to do mining on the moon. Do you think there's any chance we'll find, you know, something that adds to the periodic table that, that might be a benefit? Uh, that's a great question. So I think it, it is, anything's possible. We'll start with there. But I think we, you know, it's like in Dune, like the spice, right? Or something like that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we, uh, I, I think if we are alive long enough as a species and go to enough planets, the answer is going to be more and more definitely yes. Uh, right now, there's no evidence that we've got anything that'll help us now. But it, I think you know, the universe is vast. There are literally trillions of galaxies, right? So if we start to go to even five of them, I think we'll start to find interesting things. Yeah. I think in the expanse, there was iridium or something like that. They found a planet that had this uh, mineral that they said, oh, this is going to be revolutionary 
Yeah, it changes manufacturing and changes also a lot of what you can do for getting to other planets. So it's really, you know, I, I think there's got to be something out there. We just need some brave explorers to, uh, to jump in the spacecraft and head that way. And go look. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, yes, so, okay, I have to ask this. What do you think is the chance that there is life out there, uh, intelligent life? Yeah, so intelligent life, I think the answer is uh, very likely zero. Life, I think it's very likely almost certainly some bacterial life. Most that's because the universe is only, it's not been around that long, right? So it's around 13.7 billion years. The earth, the universe took several billion years just to cool, just for atoms to form and to get, you know, molecules. And the planets themselves, even earth have not been that cool for that long, say a few billion years. But we've had enough time on this planet for life to form and get complex. But it's really been not that much time since the universe started for there to get life or complex life. So I think eventually, I think we'll probably get more uh, intelligent life coming. I just think we might be the first ones at the party. Well, this has been a really awesome discussion, and uh, and I want to thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. If uh, if people want to follow your work, um, how would they do that? And and uh, and again, can you name the books that you've written so that they can look them up if they want to read them? Yeah, my pleasure. So the uh, website is the masonlab.net or just masonlab.net is uh, where a lot of work on the lab at Cornell is. We obviously post a lot on thorn.com for some of the work at Longevity and the work in the company. Then there's uh, my Twitter feed is at mason underscore lab. So mason underscore lab. And then Instagram is christopher.e.mason. And uh, we also, you know, the books are kind of a, a really a collection of a lot of my hopes and dreams and beliefs of what we can and should do as a species, as well as stewards and, and really guardians for life itself. So that's called The Next 500 Years, uh, subtitles Engineering Life to Reach New Worlds. And I also have another book coming out next year called The Age of Prediction, which is about uh, AI and machines and how we use it in, in medicine to cure disease. And also uh, feel free to email me. Emails on the websites I've mentioned. And uh, yeah, so thanks for having me. Terrific. So that's uh, really excellent to hear. As always, thank you everyone for tuning in and listening. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the show. And until next time. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at thornhealth. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.